0: Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's Pro Assurance First Quarter Earnings Conference call. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded. At this time, for opening remarks and introductions, I would like to turn the call over to Mr. Frank O'Neill. Please go ahead, sir.
1: Thanks, Miranda, and good morning, everyone. Thanks for being part of our call today as we discuss the results of first quarter 2010 operations and address recent developments and trends in our industry. We issued a news release Wednesday afternoon reporting our results for the first quarter of 2010. That release and our SEC filings, including the 10Q file this morning, provide you with important detailed disclosures and information regarding forward-looking statements. We are explicitly identifying statements we make today dealing with projections, estimates, expectations as forward-looking statements subject to various risks. These could cause our actual results to differ materially from current projections or expectations we will not undertake and expressly disclaim any obligation to update or alter forward-looking statements, whether as a result of new information or future events, unless required by law or regulation. The content of this call is accurate only on Thursday, May 6, 2010, the date of first broadcast. If you're reading a transcript of this call, please know that we did not authorize it and have not reviewed it for accuracy. Thus, it could contain factual or transcription errors that could materially alter the intent or meaning of our statements. One final reminder, we're going to reference non-GAAP items in our call today. Please refer to our recent filing on Form 10Q or on Form 10Q in our recent news release for a reconciliation of these non-GAAP numbers to their GAAP counterparts. On the call today is our Chairman and CEO, Stan Starnes, our President, Vic Adamo, Chief Financial Officer, Ned Rand, chief underwriting officer and actuary, Howard Friedman, and our chief claims officer, Darrell Thomas. Stan will lead off the conversation
2: today with uh, another quarter of excellent results. Thanks, Frank. We are pleased to report another solid quarter reflecting strong, steady results that are a product of our disciplined, long-term focus and a continued commitment to all that treated fairly means to our policyholders. Significantly, the first quarter of 2010 did not bring further wholesale softening of the market. We're excited to discuss the details with you. Frank? Thanks, Stan. Since you mentioned the marketplace, why don't we start with Howard Friedman for
1: comments in that area. Howard? Thanks, Frank. As Stan said, we we didn't
3: see any wholesale changes in the marketplace. The market is challenging, and adding new premium is difficult. But we've been successful in adding new quality business on two fronts through acquisition, and through organic growth. In our historical book of medical professional liability business, we wrote $6.3 million of new premium at rates we believe will allow us to meet our ROE targets. Jeff Bowlby, our Chief Marketing Officer, has been on the road meeting with agents, and he reports that the agents who represent us are finding a receptive audience for proassurance among physicians looking for more than just the lowest price. Writing new business obviously helps offset what we lose to competition, and we do give up business in a soft market, but we are retaining our accounts at high levels, 88% in our historical MPL business, which we calculate on the basis of physician renewals, and 91% in PICA's core medical liability book. On the subject of PICA, PICA accounted for the vast majority of the $21.3 million in new premium from acquisitions in the quarter. There was some increase in our lawyers' lines and at ProAssurance mid-continent, but the majority was due to PICA. And let me remind you that this is the last quarter in which the PICA transaction will affect our quarter-over-quarter premium comparisons, as that transaction closed on April 1st of 2009. We are somewhat encouraged by the pricing on renewals in the quarter. The average renewal pricing on physician policies in our historical medical professional liability business was down 2% in the quarter which compares favorably with a 4% average price reduction in last year's first quarter. PICA's renewal pricing on medical professional liability, business, in Q1 was 5% higher than expiring, compared to 2% higher in the same quarter last year. Our current accident year loss ratio is 84%, in line with the first quarter of last year. Net favorable loss reserve development was $25 million in the quarter, million better than last year, and again reflective of relatively stable long-term trends. Severity continues to increase at a more moderate level than anticipated in our prior reserve reviews, which leads to the favorable development, and in this quarter to a net loss ratio of 64%, almost two and a half points better than Q1 of 2009. Thanks,
1: Howard. Gerald Thomas, can you comment for us on recent claim trends? Sure, Frank. On the frequency side, we saw a small increase in our reported rolling average claim counts in the quarter. This confirms our belief that the period of sustained frequency decline has ended. There are many factors that could cause a variation in the number of new claims in any one quarter, so we're not overly concerned by this. What's hard to know from a single quarter is whether this is part of a trend which could help to firm the market or whether it's an isolated event. We're certainly going to monitor it carefully as the year progresses. Severity hasn't varied overall from the rate of increase we reported in prior quarters, somewhere between 4 to 5% across many states. Frank? Thanks, Gerald. Ned Rand is next to address financial highlights. Ned?
4: Thanks, Frank. This should be fairly straightforward because the story for us is, as always, the success of the bottom line. Compared to the first quarter of last year, net income was up 34% or about $10 million to $38 million, and net income per share was up 38% over the same period last year to $1.16 per diluted share. Operating income was up about $6 million, or 19%, to $39.6 million. Operating income per diluted share was $1.21, a 22% increase over the first quarter of 2009. These solid increases are the result of the higher-earned premium and favorable development that Howard touched on, plus an increase in net investment income, driven primarily by our TIPS portfolio, which performed more in line with our long-term expectations. You may recall that in the first quarter of 2009, net investment income was adversely affected by the performance of our TIPS allocation. We also benefited from a turnaround in results from our investment and in unconsolidated subsidiaries, essentially our alternative investments which are also returning to more historical return levels. We continue to face a challenging interest rate environment in which to invest. Even though we held higher average balances in our core fixed income portfolio, which helped boost income, this was offset by a reduction of approximately 25 basis points in the book yield on the portfolio. Our expense ratio was 24.6%, up about two points, and there are a couple of moving parts to understand. Mixed costs are essentially flat in our historical book of business, while earned premiums are down slightly. At the same time, we saw an increase in commission costs because of the commission paid on our pro-assurance mid-continent business, which has higher acquisition costs but lower expected ultimate losses. Our return on equity was 8.8%, higher than first quarter last year. We added $1.48 to our book value per share, which stands at $54.07 as of March 31st a 3% increase over year-end 2009, and a 22% increase over book value per share at the end of the first quarter 2009. These increases are consistent with our goal of maintaining a strong capital base that will sustain a high rating and will distinguish us from competitors in the market, especially with institutional purchasers of our product. Our track record demonstrates our willingness and desire to deploy our capital in a prudent manner through both share buybacks and acquisitions, such as PICA, And nothing has changed in that regard. As examples, we closed on three transactions last year, and we spent $52 million to buy back more than 1 million shares. In the last five years, we've spent almost $200 million buying back shares. There are a number of factors that must be considered when evaluating a share repurchase. As a result, we did not repurchase any shares during the quarter. We have over $115 million in authorization from our board and expect to deploy that when circumstances warrant. Frank? thanks, Ned.
1: Much of the interesting news in this quarter came out of Washington and several state courts, state Supreme Courts. We'll get updates on both of those from Vic and Stan. Vic, can you start with health care reform? Sure, Frank. We know that health care reform will, need, will mean significant changes for the health care insurance system, but we don't expect any immediate or direct changes for the medical professional liability business. There's nothing in the bill to address lawsuit reform other than some poorly funded demonstration projects and certainly nothing that directly addresses how medical liability insurers operate. On the positive side, it's clear that the number of people working in healthcare will need to increase at all levels from physicians to home healthcare. So the good news is that it's going to increase the available market for pro assurance. This should allow us to leverage our nationwide geographic reach and insurance expertise to offer a wide range of liability insurance products that respond at every level. For example, at one end of the market, we insure over 175 hospitals in our MPL book, while at the other end of the market, we insure a broad range of ancillary healthcare workers through ProAssurance Mid-Continent. Another example of our product diversification can be found at PICA, which will become the endorsed carrier of the American Optometric Association starting July 1st, taking on the AOA's National Professional Liability Program. The program will be completely administered over the Internet and will help us gain further experience in lower premium products that require alternative distribution. Stan, I know that you have some thoughts about how the reforms might affect the medical legal system
2: based on your years in the courtroom. Vic, I think we have to anticipate that the higher number of people in the system will increase patient frustration as the system becomes overcrowded. It's also a fact that many people often have unrealistic expectations about the outcome of their health care. So down the road, it, as our healthcare care system evolves through 2013 and beyond, there could be a consequential change in claims trends. We have to wait and see what develops, but we're prepared. We have the capital, we have the experience, and we have the products to meet these evolving needs. We get quite a few questions about tort reform each quarter, which is natural given the unmatched geographic scope of ProAssurance. While recent tort reform rulings are important, and I'll discuss them in a minute, I think it's just as important to note the relatively small total premium we have in the affected states. While the rulings on tort reforms in Illinois, Georgia, and Missouri may be immaterial to our overall financial results here at ProAssurance. They are important and material to our customers and to society as a whole, thus we pay close attention. Anytime important, hard-won legislation such as these reforms are overturned, there are consequences for any company that has not priced and reserved its business in a prudent manner. You know, there's never a certainty of winning any lawsuit So, having any kind of cap gives a plaintiff lawyer reasons turn down a marginal case. But with caps gone, the chances of a lottery-type jury verdict go up. Likewise, the absence of damage caps causes settlement demands to increase. So all of this requires close scrutiny. We still take a cautious view of the tort reforms in other states, such as Ohio and Florida, where the highest courts in those states have yet to rule on the reforms in question. We mentioned the Illinois ruling on our last call. It's still too early to see any real change in the marketplace behavior or loss trends in Illinois since that ruling. The same is true in Georgia, where the Supreme Court struck down significant parts of their tort reform in March. The key portion of the Georgia ruling was the overturning of damage caps in that state. As in Illinois, we're monitoring the climate there, but we've no, seen no changes yet. There's already talk of a Texas-like constitutional amendment to bring about tort reform in Illinois, but we've not heard that yet in Georgia. There was a ruling in Missouri on a very narrow question in one case. The end result is that the tort reform limits cannot be applied retroactively there. We all hoped for retroactivity, but expected it probably would not be allowed. That ruling did not address the main question of the constitutionality of the cap on non-economic damages, or other tort reform laws in Missouri. So they remain in place and are still being applied. All that said, to summarize the quarter great results for Pro Assurance shareholders who focus on financial results, and great results for Pro Assurance policyholders who depend on us for long term financial strength and responsive service. One final note, Frank happy birthday to the PICA Group, which is celebrating 30 years of service the nation's physicians of podiatric medicine. Dr. Jerry Brandt, Adam Wilcheck, and all of our colleagues at PICA have created a market-leading company that we are very proud to have as a part of Pro Assurance. Frank? Thank you, Stan, everybody.
1: Uh, Miranda, I think we're done with prepared remarks. Will you open the line and cue the questions?
0: Certainly. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star one on your touchtone phone. If you're using a speakerphone, please make sure that your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, that's star one for any questions at this time. We'll go first to Joe DiMarino with Piper Jaffray.
5: Thank you, and good morning. Congrats on the quarter. Uh, My first question, I'm wondering if you could maybe touch upon your capital management strategy a little bit more. I know you didn't purchase any shares uh, in the quarter, and... Uh, you did talk about it a little bit, but I'm wondering if you're seeing anything different out there in terms of acquisition opportunities or uh, if any of your um, the, the metrics you use to decide on whether or not to purchase shares have changed.
2: Thank you. Thank you for the question. You know, capital management is a discussion we have here at Pro Assurance among the senior officers and at the board level on a regular basis. Uh, we look at it very, very hard. And you've seen our past results which speak for themselves. Uh, The M&A market, the chatter has gone up a little bit uh, as opposed to what it was this time a year ago when there was no chatter at all. And we continue to look for attractive uh, possibilities for our shareholders, and we will continue in that regard. In terms of capital management, uh, everything is on the table for consideration, and we move forward in that regard in a prudent, careful manner, and as uh, the law and circumstances
4: permit. Ned, do you want to add to that? No, I, I would say you know, I agree that everything is on the table. I think one thing that is is less attractive today than it was perhaps a year ago is is some sort of recurring dividend, given given the expectations of, of taxation of dividends.
5: Okay, thank you. That's uh, very helpful. And uh, my next question, I think your, your growth, excluding acquisitions, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was down 13%, um, if if that is correct. And I think rates on existing business um, that you retained, I guess, were down just 2%, and you still had pretty good retention. Um, What what is causing the the, the shortfall there in organic growth? Is it – I mean, obviously, it's mostly lower premium rates, but is there – Is the number of doctors per policy declining at all, or is there anything else that I should think about in terms of that?
2: Let me just say one thing, and then I'll let Howard give you the details. Uh, First with respect to retention, it's very important to remember as you compare our numbers to others that it is a pure number. It's all expiring policyholders, even those that are not available for renewal. Uh, For example, we, we, we include people who die, who move away, who become disabled, who retire, Our number is a pure number, and you need to make sure you're comparing apples to apples. And the number, the retention number for the quarter is one we're quite pleased with, given that the market uh, remains soft. Second, and again, Howard will give you the details in just a moment. We remain very committed to disciplined underwriting, uh, and we're prepared, as we've said repeatedly, uh, to see our top line shrink if we cannot get adequate rate, because that's in the best interest, of our shareholders, and that's in the best interest of our policyholders. You can have all the market share you want in this business. It'll just be disastrous if it's based on mispriced products. Howard? Thanks, Dan. Uh, You know, one other thing that we had talked about uh, in the the
3: year-end call last quarter was the the shift that we had made in some of our business uh, in certain states to try to equalize our underwriting and processing workload, and we had shifted a number of policies that would normally have renewed on January 1st of 2010 and moved them back into 2009 by offering our policyholders a chance to change their effective dates. And uh, As you see in the, in the queue this quarter, uh, we report that about $6.5 million of that premium would have renewed in, in this first quarter of 2010, and it, it actually renewed in 2009. So that's also a, a factor when you're doing your calculations, in addition to the 88% retention and the 2% drop in, in renewal pricing,
1: offset by the new business.
5: Uh, thanks. That.
1: Uh, yeah, hold uh, on, Joe. There's a couple yeah. other things in there, Howard. You might want to mention. Well, we have. We, you know, we we also
3: have spoken about the two-year policy uh, term that we offer in in one jurisdiction, and that uh, actually has a lesser effect in this quarter than it has, has had in some other quarters. Uh, we had about $4 million of premium associated with two-year policies that was written in, in the first quarter of 2010 compared to uh, approximately $5.4 million in the first quarter of 2009. Okay. All right.
5: Um, thank you. Can you, How would you characterize pricing on, on business that you're that is not suitable for pro-assurance um, that, that is priced too aggressively. How, you know, versus renewing policies, how, how much lower are premiums on those types of policies that you're kind of walking away from or refusing to write?
3: Well, I think it's it's more the question of the, the policyholders not not accepting our offer than, than we're refusing to write it uh, because we do quote on, on a lot. Uh, but I think you know historically we've said that um, most of the time a 15% price difference is about the threshold at which time a policyholder will seriously consider a move, um, and we're certainly seeing competitors that are coming in a good bit uh, lower than that, or with a greater percentage uh, difference than, than 15%. Uh, you know physicians have a lot of loyalty; they they recognize. Product differences; they recognize the differences in, in the, the defense that we offer, uh, and in many instances, they're willing to. In most instances, they're willing to pay more. But when you start to talk about differences of 20% or more, which we see on a fairly regular basis, it, it, it tends to get their attention.
1: Might make it all the more remarkable that we're retaining
3: that high level of business. We, we're very very happy and 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 uh, and, and satisfied with the eighty eight percent retention. I, I would agree it's
5: the tie. Thank you. That's all I had. Thank you.
0: Once again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star one in your touchtone phone. We'll go next to Michael Manisi with Oppenheimer.
6: Um, thank you. Uh, just just a, a, a capital management question to follow up. So I mean, so right now you're writing business at about, uh, <clears throat> if my math is right, about 0.4, 4 times uh, your stat surplus, maybe a little bit lower. Um, and I know, Ned, you'd mentioned that the, the taxation, uh, potential change in taxation law makes a dividend relatively less attractive today. I mean, if we look ahead at the end of the 4th, you know, if we keep up at this rate, uh, we'll, we'll be at 0.3 times or lower at the end of the year. Wh- where do you see and 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 how do you think about that sort of uh, uh, what that means for your operating leverage, both on a on a on a R, from an ROE perspective and from just an expense perspective? As you know, we we kind of look out from here. Obviously, it's a, it's a-
4: considerable drain on ROE, especially given where um, we can, you know, where we can invest new money. Um, so, obviously, a consideration. I think, you know, Mike, I guess to the broader question, I, I would go back to just looking at what we've done in the past, and, you know, we have been prudent managers of that capital. We've deployed it in ways we think is meaningful. Um, we bought back stock when we, when we thought it was warranted. Um, We've done acquisitions when we thought they were warranted. Um, and and so, you know, we will continue to be good stewards of that capital. Um, we are much more long-term focused. And so one or two quarters of, of you know, sitting on excess capital um, does not overly concern us. Um, we're very confident
6: in our ability to deploy that capital over the long term. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, as you, as you look at your... Uh, and can you talk a little bit about the the, the taxation uh, issue as you mentioned, because I mean there are there are a lot of companies that do do select dividends as a method to return capital to shareholders. I just want to
4: yeah as, 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 I under, as, as, as we look at I don't have the rates right in front of me, but it's you know right now I think dividends are taxed at fifteen percent um, the The tax rate on dividends goes up to twenty or to twenty percent. Or 25% under the health care bill, plus you've got the 4.5% uh, Medicare that will go on to dividends now. So you're looking at a, a, a dividend tax rate of, of, you know, going up substantially. Right. So the double taxation of dividends is, because um, there's there's no relief in corporate taxation built in anywhere, um, you know, the, the double taxation of dividends is going to get much more profound. You know, Mike, I would just add to
2: that that um, – I read, I think it was Forbes a couple of weeks ago, where they said if Congress does not do something by the end of the year, the effective tax rate on dividends will be north of 40%. Uh, and that's just a heavy bite and in an inefficient way, I think, to return shareholders their money. Now, we're going to look at that very closely. It, everything, as I said, is on the table. There are just some things that are less attractive at the moment than other things, and that's one of them.
6: Right. No, I understand. I, I'm just trying to, you know, it's, you know, we're on this end just trying to understand kind of how <clears throat> how you guys are thinking about it there because you know it, you've done a great job of building a substantial amount of capital and you know to Ned's point, I mean up to this up to here you you've managed that capital so very well, um, but you know now it's just uh, we just want to try and understand where what you're thinking about acquisition something you've, you've done in the past buybacks. I'm still I'm not. Totally um, clear as to why that that dropped off. I mean, w- is it a purely a book value metric, Ned? Um, no, there,
4: again, they're, Mike. There are a lot of factors. There's there's book value. There's alternative use. There's blackout periods. Um, there, there are a lot of factors that go into through the evaluation.
3: Okay.
4: I think Mike, you. I think it's a great point that you make. It's a great question, and
2: uh, just know that we're. Looking at it, uh, just like you want us to be looking at it, and we we have a history of capital management, and I think you can see that history uh, repeated in the future.
6: Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for 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 answering that. And then, um, uh, one question, just on healthcare reform. I know we kind of talked a little bit about it, but if if suddenly you see your doctors. Um, uh change uh, the number a uh, change in the amount of patients they're seeing so their patient load goes up um, uh, can you talk about w- when you can think about uh rate changes if you feel like the exposure is increasing even if even if there's no change in um, immediate loss uh trends is, is that something that you can do proactively or do you need to wait until um, until losses start to come in
3: Mike, Howard. Um, we we Howard. can, uh, within reason, consider, you know, prospective changes in, in how we rate, and how we price. Uh, you know, of course, in many instances, we might have to provide and, and justify what we're doing. But at the same time, some of our exposure base is, um, uh, you want to say, visit sensitive. Uh, it's a portion of our policies, like emergency room. Policies and some other full-time equivalency-rated policies are based on on patient uh, encounters, so those would be somewhat self-rating. For the typical policy for the primary care physicians, internists, and so forth, they're not uh, patient encounter-sensitive rate bases, and for those, we would have to have, I think, some you know reasonably good evidence of increasing patient volume, and then make the case that we should rate those or adjust the premiums on those. It's something that we're looking at. I think a few things to, to note there. One is that all of this is going to evolve over the next three years. Uh, nothing happens immediately under the health care bill. We'll have some time to see how this all shakes out. And secondly, uh, while we do think that the number of patients represents a, an, a potentially increased exposure, there's a lot of other factors that go into it as well. and. We're going to have to try to evaluate all that as, as we go. But I guess to, to go back to your original question, I think we do have some ability to adjust price if we think we need to.
6: That's a very, very uh, thorough answer. Thank you so much, Howard. And then just one last one, if I could, um, on uh, expenses. Um, the expense ratio ticked up a little bit uh, year over year. Uh, Frank or maybe Ned, can you just... Walk us through anything that might have changed, so we just from a modeling perspective understand what sure, that,
4: that might absolutely. As we said in our prepared remarks, um, there, there are really a couple factors at play there. Um, from a from a kind of fixed cost standpoint, our operating costs uh, there's really no no dollar significant dollar change in our operating costs. Um, but we are applying that when you look at our historical book of business to a, a lower earned premium base, and, and so that's in part. Um, the reason. Uh, another component of it is the, the business we write through Pro Assurance Mid Continent. It has a higher acquisition cost, um, but it also has a lower expected ultimate loss on that business. And okay. uh, so that's driving the commission costs up a little bit. PICA comes into the mix, but, but the, the expense ratio is not really being driven by PICA. PICA's expense ratio is very much in line with the expense ratio that we reported for the quarter. So it's, it's really the it's the Mid Continent business, and and then the fact that fixed costs are flat relative to a reduction in earned premium on the historical book of business.
6: Got it. Great. Thank you so much.
0: And ladies and gentlemen, as a final reminder, it is star one for any questions at this time. We'll go next to Amit Kumar with McCary Group.
7: Uh, thanks and uh, congrats on the quarter. Uh, Two, two quick questions. Uh, first of all, in your 10-Q, uh, there's a discussion uh, on PICA's exit from, uh, uh, from e and lines. Uh, just trying to understand a bit better in terms of uh, what the impact would be on top line and maybe just uh, touch upon uh, on the loss experience in that line.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, the top line impact is, is minimal, I think $6 million or something. Um, is, is what they've written historically, and that they'll, they will continue to write some of that business in the in the current year um, as we as we shut that down. Um, the loss experience on the business has been, um, I think, we're booking at about 130% loss ratio on that business.
7: And 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 was there like some specific claim activity which sort of uh, resulted in you exiting the line instead of? sort of pricing action, what was the thought process behind that, that, that exit?
2: Amid it, Stan, uh, basically that was a business that PICA had entered before our transaction. And as we looked at the new combined organization, the management of PICA came to a conclusion that it just didn't make sense to go forward with that business on the basis they were writing it. And they suggested to us that we exit the business and we concurred. Uh, in that, and that's what we're in the process of doing
7: now. Okay, that's that's helpful. And and just then moving on, uh, I know you talked about pricing, pricing action, impact of healthcare bill. C- can you also touch upon uh, the competition and and what you might be seeing out there, uh, uh, you know, based on current trends? Sure,
3: it's, it's Howard. Uh, well, obviously a lot of competition uh, continuing as a result, for the most part, of, of generally good results in the industry. Uh, we've seen this really now for uh, four to five years, pretty significant competition. I guess the most notable thing about it, from my perspective, in the, in the physician marketplace, the competitors really haven't changed. Uh, we, we have not seen any major uh, effort by the large commercial carriers to get into the physician market space uh, in comparison to maybe what we had seen in the 1990s or even in the 1980s. The the players, for the most part, the significant players are still the same and and have been. The biggest competitor really, if if you want to talk about competitors, the biggest competitor that we have, and I think it's true across the, uh, the industry space, is hospitals. Uh, that hospitals that are acquiring physician practices and bringing physicians into their insurance programs, whether they're self-insured trusts, hospital captives, or, or other mechanisms, and taking those physicians out of the available marketplace for all of the, uh, all of the carriers. On the hospital side, uh, we do see a fair amount of activity from the what I would again call the commercial carriers, the large multi-line companies. That's not unusual. They've always been in that market, particularly in the larger uh, hospital segment. They've moved down to some extent into the mid-range hospitals, but not really into the small hospital space. uh, In in the smaller and, and, say, lower end of their mid-range segment of of hospital business, pretty much the same carriers that we've seen all along. Uh, So it's quite competitive, but Not as a result, really, of of new entrants. I think it's just as a result of uh, top line pressure for a lot of companies and and relatively good results. Mm -hmm.
8: Uh,
7: I I guess just related to that, and this is the final question uh, based on what you're seeing and in terms of rates, you know, I think you said on an average are down 2%. Do you get the sense uh, we hit 0%? You know end of two thousand ten or do we do we actually move into sort of plus one plus two percent uh, end of two thousand ten
2: well we we
3: generally tend to avoid making predictions about where rates are going to go except in a very broad sense. We did say I think it in the fourth quarter call uh, last at the end of uh, two thousand and nine that we expected uh, the pricing the rate change, or in other words, the rate decrease on renewals to be less in 2010 than it was in 09. We had minus four in 09. Obviously, we have minus two the first quarter of this year, so it's, it's, it's definitely holding towards that. I'm not sure I'd make a prediction at this point as far as future motion.
1: It's fair to say that there have been in some states by some companies some rate filings for higher rates. True. In the past- and- Right, eight
3: months. That's correct. And, and, and that includes us. We've had, uh, and I think we mentioned this in the last call as well, we had some small rate increases, uh, talking about low single-digit rate increases, again, just as the result of low interest rates, flat uh, frequency historically, you know, compared to uh, what we had seen over the past few years, and uh, gradually increasing severity. So, in other words, things starting to catch up on
1: the on the rate side. Yeah, but I think as as Jeff Bowley always reminds us too, it's not what's filed, it's what's actually charged. Sure. Absolutely.
7: Okay, that's very helpful.
1: That's all I have. Thanks so much.
0: We'll go next to Jack Shirk with SunTrust.
1: Oh, uh, thank you very much. Most of my questions have been answered. I just had a couple quick follow-ups on the 6.3 million you wrote in new premium in the quarter. What was it in
3: the December quarter? I know you wrote about 28 overall of last year, but do you know the fourth quarter number specifically?
2: I
1: mean, we're all kind of looking. Well, yeah,
4: we will, uh, we'll, we'll get our fingers on that and, and, and try and get it to you. I know we reported it in our, in our K. Well, actually, the K would be hard to dissect it out of, but we've got it, and we'll try and get that for you. If we don't get it um, by, the, by the time of the call, we'll try and follow up with it.
9: Okay, uh, no problem. And then uh, just finally I had one last question about pricing. Just, have you seen any change in the uh,
3: gap or differential between new versus renewal pricing lately? I, I wouldn't say any change. Uh, I think typically and I think most companies would probably say the same thing. Typically the pricing on, on new business is a little bit less than the pricing on renewal business just by the nature of trying to attract new business. And that, I guess you you can attribute that in part to the idea that you're looking at new business that you think is, is good, otherwise you wouldn't be writing it and quoting it at those prices. Uh, you know, in terms of a gap, I, on, on a very broad average, I would say that the gap is probably 3 to 5% difference. Great. Uh, thank you very much.
0: We'll go next to Beth Malone with Wonderlic. Okay. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, a couple of
8: questions um, on the healthcare reform act. Does does that potentially have have the opportunity to increase demand for the kind of the new product or new new business that you're writing for home health and and that kind of business?
2: Uh, yes, Beth, it does. It, it, you know, if if you look at this from a macro level. Uh, we, as a nation, are going to drive the provision of health care down to the least expensive uh, deliverers, and that will include home health care, ancillary health care providers, uh, freeing physicians to, to deal with the, the most difficult aspects of, of health care. But our view is that there will be an increase in ancillary home healthcare providers and other ancillary healthcare providers of the type written by Midcontinent. And you may recall that was one of the driving um, motivations for that transaction. But we, uh, of necessity, that's got to happen. there have got to be more of those sorts of healthcare providers in the future. Uh, and it will happen over time. It won't be something that you will see next week or next month. But if we gather back together in a few years, I think we'll see a significant increase in that. And, Beth, the, if you look
1: at the bill or the final legislation, there's even a part in there by which the federal government's going to get into the long-term care insurance business so that whether it's successful or not, I, I certainly don't know. But it certainly is going to bring it more visible um, to the public in terms of that product. And having that product, of course, leads to more health care workers being able to deliver at the end when those when those. when needs
2: come about. Beth, one other thing I I should have mentioned earlier when Mike asked his question about the number of office visits. Uh, One thing we're very proud of here at ProAssurance are our colleagues in our risk management department. And it's a robust operation, very much uh, in tune with what's happening in the real world of medicine today, and it's led by Dr. Whiteside, our medical director. They're going to be looking very closely at, the, at ways to help physicians and other healthcare care providers navigate the, the coming world that we'll see evolve over the next several years. Okay, uh, thanks. And then just a, this is just
8: me trying to understand the dynamic here. You just often have referenced the fact that you're very disciplined underwriters and very conservative and how you price your business, which has resulted in a lower top-line growth in some cases, especially in current market conditions, which appear to be improving. Yet, when we exclude the reserve development from prior years, your combined ratios are well above 100% underwriting. And if it were any other business, that would be viewed as being less than conservative. I know medical malpractice is certainly a unique line when it comes to the combined ratio. Could, but could you just kind of explain that? Well, I, you know, going back to some of the uh, comments
3: that we've made in, in the past, we tend to uh, establish the initial loss ratio at a level that is higher than our pricing expectation. We've talked about the typical 8, eight to 10 points above our pricing expectation for uh, the, the going-in loss ratio on, on an accident year with the idea that if we're wrong in terms of the assumptions that we're making, we'll be able to accommodate that in the in the uh, reserves that we establish. And if, if we're right or things turn out better than expected, as the years mature, we'll bring it down. So that is really the, the basis for the combined ratio that exceeds uh, 100 percent because we're starting off with an 84 percent loss in LAE ratio and our pricing would probably be indicating more in the 75 range.
8: Okay, so the way to look at it is you have to assume the reserve development in order to really look at the way you price it.
3: Well, you know, we, we don't, we're not assuming favorable reserve development. What we're doing is we're, we're establishing the price that we think is, is the correct price, and that's what we're charging. We're taking, if okay. you will, a penalty at the outset uh, because of the uncertainty. And if you look back in this line of business over the years, when things historically went wrong or when, when things were different than assumed, they typically were different on the, on the wrong, in the wrong direction. In other words, severity was higher than anticipated. Frequency turned out to be worse than expected. Uh, that's happened many more times than not, and that's the, if you will, the, the assumption that we're building in when we establish the reserve.
8: Okay. So, and the last time that occurred was what, two thousand ten years ago? Is uh, that right?
3: Well, I, I think probably more like two thousand and three or so in terms oh, okay. of you know frequency. Really, didn't start to decline until after two thousand three. Severity was uh, still, even in the early, in the first half of the of the decade, uh, was still at a, a higher level than where it is right now. So I'd say probably five or six years, really, that okay. things are significantly different
8: than they were historically. Okay. Well, thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. We'll go next to Howie Flinker with Flinker and Company.
9: morning, Harry. Hey, Frank. Both, both Frank and Stan. Um, as to uh, Medicare possibly adding a load to doctors, if one looks at Canada, one actually could say, make a case that claims would fall because doctors become more bureaucratic and more cautious and instead of requiring one recommend one recommendation for a patient to see a specialist, doctors may either await two or put the patient so far down the waiting list, typically 12 to 14 months, that the only time when a patient gets a uh, procedure, which is where you get most of your claims, is when it's urgent, an emergency, and then all bets are off. So uh, from the point of view of property and casualty companies, uh, this could be uh, beneficial, and I just wanted to point that out. As as you probably know, I have got family uh, both on the... Board of uh, Hospital and uh, in Medicine in Canada.
1: And those, those are very good comments. It's, it's so difficult to even begin to predict what will happen down the road because you're dealing, yeah. as you say, with the interaction of human behavior and medical demand. Um, we just, you know, obviously the one thing that will be clear is that there will be more patient availability in the system, how that's responded to in terms of the supply of physicians and other healthcare workers, how the public perceives it. I'll go into the mix, and most of it's not going to happen until 2013 and, and I mean, further on down the road. So it's something we're thinking about all the time, but really, at, at this point in time, you're exactly right. The expectations are somewhat unpredictable.
9: Physicians will respond by finding ways to crowd their schedule so that if a URI wants to see a urologist, and we have not typically seen in the past regularly, uh, we might have to wait uh, nine months for a regular visit or 15 months. And uh, while it may seem that they have a lot more patients, uh, only on the calendar do they have a lot more patients, about six minutes apiece, and then the rest of the time is, read, is spent reading uh, trade journals. Uh, seeing a patient for six months is usually not very risky. For six minutes is not very risky. I just wanted to point that out. Thanks. Um, unless they piss up in that <laughs> six minutes. <laughs> well, <laughs> and then, see, really, they can always say I was hurrying to get a cab. Yeah, I hear
1: you.
0: Okay. And we have no further questions from the phone audience. I'll turn the conference back over to our speakers.
1: Miranda, thanks very much. We'll uh, adjourn and look forward to speaking with you when we report second quarter results in August. Thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that does conclude today's conference call. We'd like to thank you all for your participation.